Amen. Thanks, Jeff. So good morning. Uh, good to see you and those of you also uh, tuning in at home. My name is Drew, one of the pastors here. Um, I'm excited to be back. We, we were away for the week, but got back uh, to be here this morning. Uh, it's always good to be here with you. And let me just encourage everyone. This is going to be a, a tough, I think, couple of weeks here as we figure out what school is going to look like. But I really am hopeful uh, that as kids get back in school and things somewhat get back to normal, this is going to be our normal for a while. And so I think we need to learn how to live in this as best we can. Uh, be assured that uh, we are doing everything we can to make sure that people uh, here are safe. So coming here, I think, is safe. Uh, people are wearing masks. We're separate. We're far enough away from one another. Uh, to where, um, you know, there's really, I don't think, much cause for worry. And so I'd encourage you, come back as you get back in school and get back into the routine of things. We'd love, we miss you. We want, want everybody to be back and worshiping, celebrating with us. So just that little um, word of encouragement this morning. Uh, looking forward uh, to uh, things getting somewhat, maybe a little bit more back to normal, hopefully. Amen? <laughs> Here's hoping. We are continuing this morning in a series that we're doing in 1 John. Uh, we're kind of making our way through the book uh, along the lines of themes that John develops. And so we come this morning to chapter 2, uh, verse 7. We're going to read there from verse 7 to verse 17. And then we're going to skip ahead because he takes up this theme later. He circles back to some of the same themes in, in chapter 5. And so we're also going to read chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 as well. So if you're following along with me, you can do that. It'll be on the screen behind me also on your screen at home. So let's read. Uh, hear, hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. I used to travel quite a bit to India. Uh, you may not know that about me, maybe a dozen times or so, years ago now, before we planted Redeemer. Uh, for the past month, one of the neat things uh, that we're rejoicing over in our families, Ashley has been part of a group of women. She's uh, one of the leading um, women who is uh, discipling a hundred ministry leaders and church planting spouses in India. 
via Zoom and, and all of that technology, and it's just an amazing thing, uh, and she's loving that. Uh, but both of us can testify, both my experience and now hers, that the Christianity in India is the real thing. I mean, it's the real thing. It's qualitatively different than what we experience a lot of times here. I remember one conversation on one of those trips that I took years ago was we were driving along with a friend uh, that I made through, by going over there again and again, and we were talking about an anti-conversion law that had been passed by the government prohibiting Christians from sharing the gospel uh, except upon penalty of being thrown into jail if they did so on public spa- in public spaces and so forth. And so I, you know, stupid American, I was trying to make conversation. I just asked, uh, you know, well, what are you going to do to my friend? Well, how, what are you going to do? What, I mean, what about this law? And, and I remember he furrowed his brow at me and said, well, what, what do you mean? Of course we're going to continue to preach the gospel. And I said stupid American, but what if they throw you in jail? And again, he kind of furred, like, I don't understand what you're saying. Well, then we'll preach the gospel in the jail. And as soon as he said it, I knew that it was the right response. But I also knew that it wouldn't have been my response. Uh, and, And there were just so many instances like that through all of those trips, my faith was tested by the, by the passion and the stick and the fortitude of the friends I made there. And I was left to just, just admit they had the real thing, real Christianity. But a lot of times I ended up with this question kind of looming, but did I? And I had to admit that the Christianity that I grew up in uh, did not seem to produce people like my Indian friends. And why is that? Is it possible that what passes for Christianity often isn't the real thing? That's what we're pondering in this series. This letter from the Apostle John is meant to put your faith to the test so you can know whether it's the real thing or not. And he does this by offering a series of tests. And the first test that we've been looking at for the last two weeks was you've got to get the gospel right. If you don't get the gospel right, then, you're, then it's, not, it's no longer Christianity. Christianity is not moralism, it's not relativism, it's that third way down the middle, the, the, the narrow way of the gospel. And so you've got to get the gospel right, or whatever you claim to believe is something other than Christianity. But here's the second test, and it's what we're looking at today. And we find it summarized best in chapter 5, verse 4, where he says, here's a test. Remember, black and white. There's no small talk here in 1 John. He just goes right at the issues, and he does that there in that verse. He says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Just so direct, straight to the point. Now that word overcome there, uh, you might be interested to know, is a Greek word that is the word Nike. Maybe you didn't know that. But Nike was the Greek goddess of victory in battle. And it literally is the word Nike there. And so one of the ways that you know that you have the real thing and not just an inoculation that presents some symptoms but actually is keeping you from contracting the real disease, one of the ways you know you do in fact have the real thing is that in your life you're going into battle and you're emerging victorious. You're overcoming. You fight and through the process of fighting you win. I mean that's what he says here and so this is true of all of us but 
uh, again, to kind of talk around this issue for a minute, what we see are, are a number of things here that will allow us to kind of dig a little deeper into this. And the first, the first is that he shows us why we have to fight. He offers a warning of the opposition that we're actually facing in our life. Secondly, there's a call to maturity, to growth in the gospel. And then thirdly, there's a reminder of gospel grace here. And so you see the need to overcome and the path to overcoming and the power indeed to overcome because everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And so let's look at each of those as we walk through this text together, just starting with this idea of there's a need to overcome. And so John issues a warning about the opposition that we indeed are facing in the world. Uh, he talks about an evil that is personal and organized and unfortunately even inside there are spiritual forces beyond us and around us and even within us that together seek to dominate and control us and produce an anti-Christ way of believing and behaving. And so you don't have a choice. You have to get in the fight. If you're not in the fight, if it feels like peacetime and not wartime, if, if, you, I don't, if you can't really connect your spiritual life with that metaphor there, then all of that means is that the enemy has already delivered the knockout blow and you're on the mat. Because we see here that evil is a personal evil. Look there in verses 13 and 14 twice, addressing the young men, John writes, you have overcome the evil one. Now the word there is actually an adjective. It's not a noun. Hence the translation as it comes to us, the one who is the personification of evil. And so again, here the image is, he's, he's picturing two people squaring off against one another in battle, the young men and the evil one. And the young men are overcoming this evil one. And so evil in the Bible is personal. Now, he goes by many names. Satan, Lucifer, the devil. Uh, but whatever name you give him, this is the way that the Bible conceives of evil. As a part of the ancient rite of baptism in Christianity... The minister, this is uh, first and second century and, you know, into the first few centuries of the church. The minister would, would, um, would ask, do you reject the devil and all his works? And the person being baptized would loudly proclaim, I do, and then symbolically turn towards the west, which is the symbol of darkness, and spit in the face of the devil. Now, I think that's cool. And I personally think we ought to bring that back. Wouldn't that be great? But we don't really, we don't do that anymore because we don't really believe like that anymore. For the most part, secularism continues to strip us of transcendence and so our conception of any personal evil has become cartoonish. But when you think about it, what a brilliant strategy to make us not take the idea seriously. You have a spiritual enemy and he is more powerful than you and he's smarter than you and he's organized. He's far more prepared for you than you are for him. And so according to the Bible, evil is not just personal, it's also organized. And I'm thinking of the word that gets repeated again and again in verses 15 through 17, the, the world there, the cosmos, which refers to the, organize, the, system, the organized system of, of human pride and rebellion against God that takes shape in concrete structures and policies and institutions. Evil is a kingdom. And so in Psalm chapter 2, for example, it talks about the nations raging and the kings of the earth conspiring together and plotting and devising strategies to overthrow God's rule and set up a godless regime of their own making. And the result of that plotting is the cosmos. 
So John writes there in verse 15, do not love the cosmos, this collective project of human pride that seeks to topple God's government. In Romans 12, Paul says that the agenda of the cosmos is to squeeze you, to conform you into its pattern, to apply pressure externally and squeeze you into its antichrist mold, the way kids take Play-Doh and put them in molds and squeeze the molds in the Play-Doh, the soft dough takes the shape of the mold. That's exactly what Romans 12 is talking about. We talk about peer pressure. There's culture pressure. There's cosmos pressure. And if you're a person of faith, the reality is you might not believe the same way as the rest of the world, but a lot of times we do the same things. We use the same technologies the way everybody else does. We have a lot of times the same goals and priorities for our lives. And so as a result, we end up, even in an, being unaware of it, looking very much like the rest of the world, even though we have very different beliefs because we've, we've been conformed to the schematics of the cosmos without even knowing it. But Romans 12 says don't be conformed like that instead be being transformed and the difference between those two words is really important conform refers to change that is the result of external pressure coming from the outside and shaping our internal lives but transformed is actually the opposite it's change that happens internally and then makes its way out christians are people who are not conformed they are transformed. I'm trying to raise kids whose lives don't take the shape, you know, take shape of the way they're being conformed to the external pressures, but to the way the things that are going on inside of them by the Spirit are making their way out and actually changing their circumstances. We're to be being transformed, living from the inside out. But of course, in order for that to happen, we first have to address the evil within us because here's the really bad news. There's an inside man. John Owen put it this way. He said, what if there was a traitor in the castle waiting for the opportunity to, to let the drawbridge down so that the enemy could come across and conquer. And he said, we have a traitor, an inside man, working to establish the control of the evil one through the cosmos in us by creating desires or lusts that dominate our lives. Now notice that word repeated in verses 15 through 17 also. The world and its desires... It's a very specific word. It's the word epithumia, over-desires, excessive desires. These out-of-control, raging appetites and lusts for not only bad things, but also for good things that we love too much. You can desire a bad thing, and you can desire a good thing too much in the wrong way, at the wrong time. And so when we think of sin, we tend to focus on externals and not go deep enough. But the real work is to get in touch with our out-of-control desires and the way they're shaping our lives. And so there are spiritual forces above us and around us and even within us that are seeking to dominate and control us. So sin is not just something that we commit. It's something we're in. It's a state. And here, here is the bad news before we get to the good news this morning. Evil has declared war on you. It's not peacetime. You got to get in the fight. But secondly, we see not only this need to overcome, but there's also a path to overcoming that's given to us here. There's an expectation of growth from spiritual infancy to maturity. Fellowship with God, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, is a participation in God's life, which is a dynamic and not a static reality. And so 
in verses 12 through 14, it's, it's, it's kind of like a parenthesis in what John has been saying in chapter 2 here. And there in those verses, John addresses three different categories of people. Little children, young men, and fathers. Now, you'll notice they're out of order in the way that he writes. We'll get back to that in just a minute. But they describe three different stages of spiritual growth. So just as physically, we all grow from children to young adults and into middle age and beyond. And if you don't physically grow that way, it means something's terribly wrong. You need to get to a doctor as soon as you can. And we also mature in the same way or we're meant to mature the same way psychologically and emotionally as well. So if someone matures physically but remains an adolescent psychologically, if they get stuck in childhood or, or adolescence, it's disastrous. Well, it's the same spiritually. And each pair here of addresses to these three categories seems to indicate levels of spiritual development. That was Augustine's view. Calvin and Luther disagree. Can you imagine having to choose between those guys? That's hard for a Presbyterian pastor to do, I can tell you. But I'm more of an Augustine man. And by the way, just so we're all on the same page, Augustine is in heaven, St. Augustine is in Florida. You've heard that? Okay. And so, so we'll go with Augustine. And he says it means something like this. Little children there that, that he addresses are those who have a simple understanding of faith. They know their sins are forgiven. They know God loves them like a father. They've got the gospel basics down. Young men, this is the next stage, are a little further down the road. They're strong, we're told. They're full of spiritual energy and vitality. The word of God abides in them, it says. They are, they're able to do battle dressed in the armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6, and are victorious. They overcome, he says twice. And then their fathers, who are even a little further into their own spiritual journey. Their passion has been joined by wisdom, and they enjoy even a much deeper knowing of God. And so in Christianity, if it's the real thing, there is the you that you were, and the you that you're becoming, and every time you look back, those two things seem further and further apart. That's what he's saying. Now be careful, Jack Miller used to say that the better you are, the worse you feel. Because the only way to gain ground on sin is to discover more and more of it, of course. And as you discover more and more of it, as you become more and more aware and unravel the layers of your sinfulness, you're going to feel worse and worse. But it's an indication that that wrestling with your sin and feeling worse and worse is actually an indication that you're getting better. You feel weak, but it actually is victory. But only as you do two things. So the path really boils down to these, these two things. You have to deal with your heart and you have to be forsaking the world. So you have to, that's the path. You have to be dealing with your heart to grow spiritually into maturity like this. And you have to be forsaking the world. And so look at each of those just quickly before we move on. But you're dealing with your heart. Pay attention to the language of these verses. It's all about the affections. Jonathan Edwards says that true religion consists mainly in the affections. And so it's not about what you know. Although we're going to talk about that next week because it's important. But it's not ultimately about what you know or even what you do or even what you feel but what you love. And you are what you love. So, do not love the cosmos or the things in the cosmos. For if anyone loves the cosmos, the love of the Father is not in him. 2.15 In other words, you can't beat sin with good theology. 
or with willpower. You need a love for God that beats everything else. And our loves are shaped by the environments and the liturgy that inhabit. And so the only way to make progress, only way to make progress against our disordered loves, against these epi desires we've talked about, is to weaken them by changing the thinking and the habits that created them in the first place. Because habits shape our desires. And you cannot change yourself at the level of desire, but you can change your habits. You, you deal with your heart through your body. And there's so much to say there. And I can refer you to some really great material, but we need to keep moving. But that's the way you deal with your heart. You go, below the, you go below the surface of your behaviors and you start to ask questions about what's motivating my, me here and what are the, 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 the habits and the patterns of my life that are shaping the loves and the desires that have really taken control of me. And let me try to get to the bottom of that. But also, not only do you have to be dealing with your heart, you have to be intentionally forsaking the world. Those cultural liturgies that make up the sinful industrial complex because you can't love the cosmos and love the Father. Did you notice that? They are competing loyalties. The loyalty, loyalty to the one requires the forsaking of the other. So let me show you this from the text. But first, this is not asceticism. It's not a rejection of the world. Let's all come out of the world. Let's don't be worldly. Let's all, you know, and there's nothing wrong with homeschooling your kids or pulling, you know, but let's, let's all just huddle around and, and do these things because the big bad world out there is something we're trying to avoid. That's not at all what John, John's saying. We, we must reject worldliness. And the problem with trying to get out of the world, of course, is what? You can't get away from it because where else is it? It's in here too. And so it's a rejection of worldliness. There, verse 16, this is really important. Being of or from the world rather than of or from the Father. Do you see the language there? Having your life flowing from your participation in the cosmos rather than from the real intimate fellowship that you're experiencing with the Father. There's a preposition there in that verse that denotes an origin or a cause. And so the question is, what is the source? What is the spring of your life? Where does it flow from? Where does it come from? Have, how much have you, maybe un, unknowingly, taken on the characteristics of the cosmos? And he describes them here in detail for us in verse 16 to help us make that diagnosis. Three things that are a summary of the worldliness that we must forsake at all costs. The overdesire of the body. You see that? The overdesires of the body are out of control appetites for food and drink and sexual gratification and physical comfort. The over-desires of the eyes, an obsession with appearance and a preference for glitz over substance and superficiality and no appreciation for depth. Everything just has to look good. And then, of course, the pride of life or the pride of possessions. You'll note the footnote there, which, of course, refers to materialism, wealth, an overabundance of a desire for these things. But word, the word actually there is a word that refers to a boast. So it's a desire for public acclaim and recognition to put yourself on display for people to see. The world is a place where everyone is trying to get ahead of everybody else, trying to win, to have more, to have more bottom line or more TikTok followers. And the rules of the game are set. But what Paul, what Peter, excuse me, what John is saying here is the rules of the game may be set, but if you're a Christian, you should play dirty. The cosmos is a spiritual power, and it's seeking to train you in and reinforce a life of selfishness, indulging the desires of the body and the eyes, fueled by pride, slavery to self. And so, loving the world 
like we're warned of here, makes you unloving. Because, of course, love is putting someone else ahead of yourself. It's living sacrificially and not selfishly towards others. And it's the ability to love and not live selfishly that proves you have the real thing. Look back at verses 10 and 11. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. So the person whose life is flowing from the Father's heart loves the way he loves. The worldly person, on the, on, in contrast, their life flows from their slavery to self. And it's that very thing that characterizes the cosmos. And so in order to overcome, you have to be becoming less and less a person of the world and more and more a person of the Father, a person whose life is flowing from the Father's love. That's the path. But let's not end there. Let's finish by looking thirdly at the power, because there's a power here that's promised to us as, as well as explicitly stated, where the power to overcome comes from in chapter 5, verses 4 or 5. This is the victory, he says, that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so our doing, let's remember, is believing, which means the victory is not ours. The battle is not ours. What we're told here is that Jesus Christ, he fights for us, and all that he is and has and has done becomes ours by faith. The text hints at something decisive that has happened that makes all of what we've been saying possible. We can grow into spiritual maturity, dealing with our hearts, forsaking the world, loving others, and not living for ourselves because, verse 8, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That same language is echoed in verse 17. Look there, it says, the world is passing away along with its desires. So this cosmos that currently has us in our grips, we're told here is passing away, but the will, the one who does the will of the Father is the one that's going to abide forever. So this dark age of sin and selfishness is on its way out. There you go. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ has brought a new age into being. The true light, already shining, we're told they're true, because it is, in a sense, real. It's present. It's available. It's here now. And so we're told the decisive victory against evil has already been won. Jesus Christ, our champion, went out into battle against evil, and he came out victorious. The evil one has been driven out, we read, we read in John's Gospel this week. The cosmos has been overthrown. And it may feel like things are getting worse and worse, but that's just the death rattle of evil gasping for its final breath. The darkness is passing away because of the work of our faithful Savior. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Aslan is on the move. And faith, what faith does is faith connects me and my life to that reality. Even though it may not, I may not experience it all the time firsthand, or I may not even feel it, it puts me into the proper relationship to his work. It says, he is overcome, and that's my victory. So faith is the power to overcome. The opposite of faith, of course, being works, which means to put my money on me, and that's a bad bet every time. So here's the truth. Evil can plot and scheme against our ultimate joy, but it cannot prevail. What does prevail, we're told here, is God's good intentions toward us as his beloved. Look all the way back at verse 7. Did you see how he starts this section with that word? And it's because everything else in chapter 2 is downstream from that one word, and everything in our life is downstream from the reality of our belovedness. 
which has been won for us by Jesus in his death on the cross. In Romans 8, Paul writes that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's the same word there in that famous passage that Jeff read a little while ago keeps, that keeps popping up here. It's the word Nike, but it has a prefix attached to it. And actually there in the Greek, it's hyper-Nike. That's what that word means, more than conquerors. Hyper-Nike, not just conquerors, more than, more than that. Hyper-conquerors. And if you need an image in your mind, and I could give you a bunch, uh, but if you remember in the last Olympics, Katie Ledecky, the, the swimmer who just dominated every event she was in, do you guys remember her? I mean, if you watched it on TV, the whole, everybody would be swimming this way, and she would be swimming this way, passing them, going the other way, because she was so far. She didn't just win every event. She decimated everybody she swam against every time. That's what that word means. You're not just a conqueror. You're, not just, you're, you're more than that. You're something far more than that. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us for, he says, because I am sure, I'm convinced, Paul says, that nothing in heaven and earth will be able to separate me from the love of God for me in Christ Jesus. You overcome when you're convinced that underneath you, all around you is the current of God's love. I love that imagery. We were in the mountains this week, uh, like, I, like I said a little while ago, and one of my favorite things to do when you're in the mountains is to tube down the river. Anybody else like to do that? So our, our family loves that. It's so relaxing to just sit back and be pushed along by the river. And a lesson I learned early that I keep forgetting every time and have to relearn it is uh, the only way you can get in trouble is if you try to paddle. You're better off just letting the river take you wherever it's going. And that really is the image I would leave you with. There's so much to be worried about at the moment. There really is. School starting. Are my kids going to be okay? I've got a senior this year. Is, is his senior year going to be ruined? Oh, is his life going to be ruined because his senior year is ruined? Don't laugh at me. That's the things that parent th the parents think those kinds of things. I mean, business is tough. Am I going to lose my job? I mean, it's a tough time. So how do you not just survive but overcome, and not just overcome, but more than overcome, hyper-Nike. How do you do that? Well, you have to be convinced that no matter what comes, no matter how scary it gets, no matter how uncertain the future might be, underneath you, all around you, you're being carried along by God's love. Your life is taking shape around God's loving intentions towards you as his beloved. Your life's taking shape around his love, not your mistakes. His love, not the evil that's set against you. His love is what prevails. We are God's beloved because of sheer grace. And nothing can prevent God's love for us from prevailing. That's the victory. You with me? And here's the thing. The person who believes that is unstoppable. I mean, they lap at the field. And that's ultimately what John wants to see us be because that, that is the real thing. And so let's pray that it will become a real for us as well, okay? Would you do that as we prepare to come to the Lord's table? Well, as we prepare to, to take communion together uh, this morning. And as we just quietly reflect, I'm going to read an old prayer from the Valley of Vision uh, just as my prayer. It's called The Servant in Battle. And I think these words will be helpful to you. So let's pray. Oh, Lord, 
I bless thee that the issue of the battle between thyself and Satan has never been uncertain and will end in victory. Calvary broke the dragon's head, and I contend with a vanquished foe, who with all his subtlety and strength has already been overcome. When I feel the serpent at my heel, may I remember him whose heel was bruised, but who, when bruised, broke the devil's head. My soul with inward joy extols the mighty conqueror. Heal me of any wounds received in the great conflict. If I have gathered defilement, if my faith has suffered damage, if my hope is less than bright, if my love is not fervent, if some creature comfort occupies my heart, if my soul sinks under pressure of the fight, O thou whose every promise is balm, every touch life, draw near to thy weary warrior, refresh me, that I might rise again to wage the strife and never tire until my enemy is trodden down. Give me such fellowship with thee that I might defy Satan, unbelief, the flesh, the world, with delight that comes not from a creature in which a creature cannot mar. Give me a drought of the eternal fountain that lieth in thy immutable, everlasting love and decree. Then shall my hand never weaken, my feet never stumble, my sword never rust, my shield never rest, my helmet never shatter, my breastplate never fall as my strength rests in the power of thy might and not my own. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so this God who has so tenderly spoken to us and fed us now sends us, but he sends us with these words. We read them this past week. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, for I am going to prepare a place for you. What this benediction means is that as he sends you, he has already gone before you. And just as he's preparing an ultimate future, an ultimate place for you, he's prepared this week for you, like a good shepherd who's gone before the flock to make sure everything is what the flock needs. He's gone before you, and so he says, I will come and I will take you and bring you to where I am. And so whatever may face us out those doors as we go, we meet him in it. And, and it's his love underneath us, all around us, the current of it that is driving our lives this week. And so just take rest in that, okay? Stop trying to paddle furiously and get yourself where you think you need to go. Let God's love take you where he desires for you to go by resting and receiving uh, in these words this morning. And so if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, hear this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.